Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, this is our five things we got right episode. It's really more of like lessons from 2021. It's been a crazy year. It's kind of our wrap up of the year, uh, what we're taking with us into 2022. So we're going to go through a few things for you guys. The first is, which of our predictions last year came true and which ones were a flop, which ones we failed on? We're going to talk about five things we got right. We're going to talk about five things that surprised us, five mental models we unlocked, and five bets going into 2022. And then we end this podcast with some reflections on the market, whether we think there's a blow off the top coming, whether we think next year is going to be a good year, bullish or bearish. So stay tuned to catch all of those details. David, been a fun year, man. Maybe we should just get to the episode. Do you have any thoughts before we do that? Yeah, 2021 has been a crazy year, and I feel like almost every single quarter deserves its own reflection, but crypto moved so fast that we didn't have the time to do that at the end of every single quarter. So we were trying to summarize and reflect upon an entire year in crypto, which is, has also been crypto's craziest year. So it deserves a ton of reflection and a ton of attention. So we are going to unpack something that we have all experienced already and try and discover what it means, where it's pointing, where it's going, and why the things unfolded in the way that they did. So we'll go ahead and get right into those conversations. But first, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google to compare ticket prices. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? When you make your trades, you want to make sure that you're getting the best possible price on your trade and that you aren't paying high gas costs that you could have otherwise avoided. That's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha routes your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, and gives you the best possible prices without taking any commission. Matcha has smart order routing that splits your order across multiple liquidity sources if Matcha sees that it gets you better pricing. Trading on Matcha is super easy because it pulls the liquidity for me into a single easy to use platform and that has even saved me multiple times from accidentally picking the wrong decks to trade on and accidentally getting a bad price. Matcha also allows for you to make limit orders on chain so you can set and forget your DeFi trades and they will go through automatically while you're away. New to Matcha is an integrated fiat on-ramp so you can purchase crypto directly with your credit or debit card and have that fiat be instantly traded for any token that has liquidity. When you're making a trade, head over to matcha.xyz slash bankless and connect your wallet to start getting the best prices and most liquidity when you trade your crypto assets. Living a bankless life requires taking control over your own private keys. Not your keys, not your crypto. That's why so many in the bankless nation already have their Ledger hardware wallet, which makes proper private key management a breeze. But the Ledger ecosystem is much more than just a secure hardware wallet. Ledger is the combination of the Ledger hardware wallet and the Ledger Live app. And if you're used to seeing all of your crypto services and favorite DeFi apps all in one spot, Ledger Live is where you want to be. Not only does Ledger let you buy your crypto assets straight from the app, but it also hooks into all of the DeFi apps and services that you're used to. Using Ledger Live, you can stake your ETH in Lido, swap on DEXs like Paraswap, or display your NFTs with Rainbow. You can also use Wallet Connect inside of Ledger Live to connect to all the other DeFi apps that keep coming online. DeFi never stops growing, and the Ledger Live app grows alongside with it. So click the link in the show notes to see all of the DeFi apps that Ledger Live has, and stay tuned as more apps come online. And if you don't have a Ledger hardware wallet, what are you even waiting for? Go to ledger.com, grab a Ledger, download Ledger Live, and get all of your DeFi apps all in one place. 
Hey guys, happy holidays, Bankless Nation. This is a David and Ryan episode. We haven't done one of these in a while, but when we do, it's always a treat. David, how you doing, man? Oh, just fine, Ryan. Back in Seattle, it's extremely cold. <laughs> and that's been at the top of my mind this morning, how goddamn cold it is. <laughs> yeah, how much you want to be back in San Diego, Southern California, right? Very much so, yeah. My flight back to San Diego is the day after Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as possible. Yeah. Let's make this flight as soon as possible. <laughs> Well, David, I think this is going to be a really fun episode because it's our chance to really reflect back on 2021, everything we learned. And Bankless listeners, we're going to split this episode into two parts. So part one is everything we learned this year, the year of 2021, and also how that informs the bets that we're making going into 2022. Our thesis, the bets, the framework, the mental models, all of that is going to be in part one. In part two, we're going to talk about this thing that we kind of helped start, which is the Bankless movement thing that we're building now that we've kind of dedicated our working lives to maybe not just our working lives like i think about bankless a lot david i don't know about you the whole thing yeah (laughs) and that's what we're going to be talking about in part two so this is a special holiday episode for you it's going to be our last episode of the year hope you're enjoying the holidays hope you've had some time to uh, get away from screens spend with your loved ones spend with your friends and family also some time to reflect on the craziness that was 2021 in crypto because it was crazy. And I would just say rest up because it's not slowing down next year. Mm -mm. Like a crypto just accelerates. It only moves forward in velocity. It only goes in one direction. That is the direction of acceleration. So we're going to get into that, David. But why don't we start with kind of part one, our reflections on the year that was 2021. These last 12 months really felt like, I don't know. I mean, January feels like five years ago like six or seven years ago at this point in time, all that's gone on, all that's happened. What did you think high level about the year, David? Man, I've said it before, but 2021 is the year that the whole entire crypto industry, starting from probably when Bitcoin first got any sort of like meaningful attention on it from its first few adopters, 2021 was the year that like crypto predicted. Obviously, it's going to throw us a bunch of curveballs left and right, and we totally got those curveballs in 2021. But some of the underlying themes definitely were predicted by crypto well before even you and I got into crypto, like the inflation in the dollar mainly and all other fiat currencies, starting to see some fiat currencies pop off one by one with hyperinflation events. You can definitely see the writings on the wall. Some of them have already happened. And then like the Turkish lira happened this year and then, you know, inflation in the dollar picking up. So that's been a crypto prediction from the from the beginning. That definitely happened this year. We finally started to see public companies putting Bitcoin on the balance sheet, celebrities and big companies moving into crypto in meaningful and sustainable ways. It really just in so many different ways was what crypto people always thought would happen and hoped for a really long time. And so uh, when it's time to reflect on the end of the year, like that's kind of where my head's at. No, this wasn't just another year. This was the year for crypto. This is when so many things happened that are good for crypto. And like I said, in one of my recent articles, like the 2021 was a big W for everything new and everything crypto and a big fat L for everything incumbent. And I kind of think that's, that's kind of the theme of the year, like W for the new things and L for the old things. Yeah. It's kind of surprising how much crypto got right this year, right? How much was um, kind of proven this year? Mm -hmm. I mean, it had been a dark bear market and I wouldn't say 2020 was a bear market, right? We definitely got some um, tailwinds that year, right? DeFi summer, lots of great things happened the previous year. But 2021, it felt like the first year it felt undeniable. 
it felt like we had mainstream's attention. I think Ryan Selkis used the word inevitable. We've said this all along about crypto. That, hey, crypto is inevitable. Like, but that's been kind of more hopium. Now I think mainstream sees the inevitability of this asset class, uh, and that's been cool to see. So maybe just surprising the amount of things that that crypto got right mm -hmm. in a very concentrated year. But that's not to say there weren't some curveballs, like some things that were total surprises, some things that we didn't expect. David, let's see this, man, because at the end of every year, we put together a list of predictions. We did that at the end of 2020. Uh, we created a piece called Bankless Predictions 2021. And I want to review some of these because it's interesting, the mindset that we were in at the time. And I feel like the end of 2020, the beginning of 2021, if I'm thinking about it correctly, I think ETH was around 700 or so. Do you recall the Bitcoin price at that time? Yeah, Bitcoin had uh, just crossed its all-time high and December 14th, I don't know what day we released this, but December 14th, Bitcoin had crossed $20,000 again for the first time. And it was crushing it, right? Like yeah. relative to Ether as well, it was yes. just having a really good year. And there was this sentiment in the year, uh, everyone was very bullish DeFi mm -hmm. at the time, if you recall, because we just come out of an incredible DeFi summer, all of these token launches and discovered yield farming. Uh, and that was a big focus. And it was in that backdrop where we're trying to figure out, okay, what's going to happen in 2021? And so here are some of the predictions we made. We call these our layup predictions. One, we said ETH will cross all-time highs. Remember, to that point, like ETH had never been above, what, 1,300 or so? Yeah, 1,400 was the previous high. And at the time of writing, it was something like 700 to $900. Yeah, and that was like, uh, we were feeling pretty good at 700. Mm -hmm. So we said ETH would cross all-time highs and hit 2,500. Called that a layup prediction. We said crypto would become a multi-trillion dollar asset class. Okay, It had just barely touched $1 trillion in market cap. We said that was like obviously going to double, triple, something like this. Uh, we made predictions about... Ethereum settlement value. We also talked about um, DeFi protocols reaching the top 10 in market cap. So I recall um, one of the things I think we really expected at that point in time was coin market cap would be full of Ethereum, Bitcoin, maybe a couple of others, but then the DeFi tokens right. would launch into the... They'd populate like 10 through 5, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, they'd kick out the ripples and the you know trons of the world and the stupid coins that were in the you know in the top ten. We got that one wrong, by the way. That, <laughs> that was wrong. wrong. So okay. far, all of them have been right, but that one was wrong. <laughs> that one was wrong, very wrong. And I think we want to talk about that today. We also said DeFi total market cap would cross a hundred billion. We were at twenty-eight billion in total locked value at the time. We said so. We got that right. Although we did say a hundred billion is our bearish estimate. And now here we are in 2021. We had yeah. just barely crossed 100 billion. I think the high- Yeah, we peaked at 120, yeah. And mm -hmm. this is measured by, you know, DeFi Pulse. So if you look at other alt layer ones and such, you know, those aren't included in those numbers, but we just barely did it. We beat our bearish estimate, but I'll check mark that as a, we got that right. We're also pretty bullish on Bitcoin on Ethereum, like tokenized Bitcoin on Ethereum. And I didn't even know, we said 2.5% of the total Bitcoin supply would be on Ethereum sometime in 2021. I don't even know the status of that, David. Like, how do we do on that prediction? I'm pretty sure we are above 2.5% and I'm pulling that up right now. Well, you pull that up. Another prediction we called a layup was Coinbase's IPO. They would IPO, which that in itself is a checkmark prediction. Mm -hmm. But we said it will have a valuation greater than 100 billion. 
And last time I checked, I mean, it probably depends on the day, but like Coinbase, about 60 billion or so. I'm not sure what the highs were, if it ever got above 100 billion, but close-ish, but maybe no cigar in that prediction. I think we got the main thing right. It was just a Coinbase IPO, and we were just off by uh, a couple dozen billion in terms of the valuation of Coinbase. Yeah, currently clocking in at 62 billion in market cap. I think it got up to like 80 billion, 85 billion at the very, very peak at the very start, but it did not sustain that at all and fell quite a lot, actually. How much Bitcoin is on Ethereum? According to DeFi Pulse, 228,000 Bitcoin are on Ethereum. So that is about a little bit more than 1%. Like it started to slow down, right? It was really crushing it last year in 2020. And we kind of extrapolated that and said it would, you know, get 2.5%. Didn't quite hit that. We also said uh, banks would start adopting Ethereum as infrastructure to settle dollar payments. I think we saw a lot of that with not quite formal banks, but like the visas of the world and the PayPals of the world getting to stable coins. So Overall, like predictions are hard, but I feel really good about some of these predictions mm-hmm. we made at the end of last year. I feel like where it was wrong, we were probably overly bullish on DeFi yeah. relative to other things, but everything else was pretty darn close. Any thoughts? Yeah, you can definitely tell when in the year some of these predictions were made. This was also the moment of under-collateralized stablecoins. So there's a lot of predictions about stablecoins in here. Yeah. I make the prediction that no significant new layer one will launch in 2021 and granted technically that's true because both avalanche and solana launched in 2020 not 2021 but meaningfully i did not get that one right (laughs) directionally wrong and there's a few other ones as here like we talked about libra will launch and no one will care i don't think that definitely happened that was your prediction yeah yeah it's kind of like libra didn't launch and also no one cared so that was kind of half right yeah either way Lucas made some fantastic predictions. Uniswap will reach $1 trillion in annualized volume. I think that did happen. And value of crypto art will cross $1 billion in art sales. Definitely predicted, like, you know, NFTs leading the way. Yeah, absolutely. These are always just fun to look back on. He also said DPI crosses $1 billion in market cap, which it didn't get there. Nope. Which is interesting. Again, nope. overly bullish on DeFi going mm. into the year. You said that Tron would go the way of XRP one way or another. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that kind of happened, David, right? Like there's been almost no conversation about Tron. The end of last year, remember that was the ETH killer du jour. Mm -hmm. And now like recently, was it last week, Justin Sun just um, done with the project. I'm done with Tron. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm moving on. Right. I'm going to do something else with my life. Yeah. It feels like that project is kind of stalled, not Mm -hmm. doing very much. We also obviously predicted EIP 1559 gets shipped, starts burning some ETH. That was actually a harder prediction to make at the time. Yeah, this is true. Right now it's deployed and everyone forgets. Mm -hmm. Everyone forgets that that was not a layup prediction at the time because there had been a ton of delays for EIP 1559. It was like two, three years in the making. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got that one right. The internet bond gets memed into existence. I feel like that kind of happened. That definitely happened. That Yeah, Ether and ETH staking was talk, discussed as like shoulder to shoulder with the risk-free rate in a number of financial reports from banks and funds and stuff like this. And so that absolutely happened. Look at this one. I'm actually proud of this one. A central bank will acquire Bitcoin. All right. Mm-hmm. It's kind of happened in El Salvador, didn't it? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, Definitely. That was also uh, something that, you know, seems obvious now that's happened, but was definitely not obvious at the time. I don't know if this happened to you, but I predicted Mm -hmm. uh, that we'd start getting text messages, like bull market text messages. I have so many of those. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So many. Yeah. 
I said, we'll enter a 2017-like retail FOMO, and the friends and families that you know that know you're in crypto will be asking you for advice. 100%. That definitely happened. Now, they were asking about NFTs, though, <laughs> weren't they? Yeah, this is true, but <laughs> NFTs are crypto. I also said the digital one will launch. It kind of has launched yeah, uh -huh. as well. Yep. And I said, if it was successful, the US will be forced to consider a digital currency strategy. Look. That second part did not happen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like they're in this constant state of denial, kind of considering it, yeah. but like not being serious about it. Yeah. And so that's just um, never be bullish on government timelines, especially nope. US government timelines. Nope. I think there's nope. a lesson there. Overall, man, pretty good predictions, actually, mm -hmm. going into the year. So let's talk about this now, David. Some of the big things that I feel like we got right in the bankless thesis. So more than predictions, there were at least five things I think we nailed. We hammered on for quarters for almost a whole entire year. Definitely big themes that we had very strong conviction on that did end up playing out in 2021. So let's talk about these. We got five of them. The first is- This one's easy. The crypto became a multi-trillion dollar asset class. We said that would happen. Again, bullish crypto, right? Bankless has always been bullish, generally crypto. Now we're in the multi-trillions of dollars. We said that was a layup. And I feel like crypto has really reached escape velocity with this. Like when you're in the multiple trillions, I mean- you can dip, you can enter bear markets, that sort of thing, but it ain't going anywhere now. Like it's no longer just a fad. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think this is the zone of like total market cap where there's a decoupling between the naysayers of crypto and the capitulators of crypto. People are just looking at crypto now and choosing to not ignore it and say, oh, it's in the multi-trillions now. I guess I'll take this seriously. Paul Tudor Jones comes to mind. Uh, Raul Paul comes to mind. You know, banks issuing reports comes to mind. This is when crypto like triples in size and the number of crypto antagonists or crypto naysayers did not track the growth of crypto. Crypto outgrew its naysayers with this in, in yeah. this metric. And I think that's a great summary for it. So like crypto becoming a multi-trillion dollar asset class, it has more tailwinds of support than it does antagonism, which is actually, I think, one of the new things about the world of crypto in 2021 and, and 2022 moving forward. I totally agree. I think it makes the naysayers look foolish. Yes. Look yes. kind of silly yeah. when they were saying things like, hey, it'll never recover. Crypto's dead. It'll never come back. It's just a fad. It makes them, it looks like bitter people that missed out. It does. And it becomes yeah. increasingly so as the market cap goes up. I wonder about that point, whether you agree with that point about escape velocity. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this is now like cats out of the bag, genies out of the bottle, it's over. The crypto mm -hmm. is now here to stay. It can't be shut down, can't be regulated out of existence, can't be squashed as maybe early Bitcoiners felt in the earliest days of, of Bitcoin when it was just an infant in the crib. Yeah, even if we had like the worst possible 2022 when it comes to prices of crypto assets, even if we had like the doomsday scenario where like we get hit with a 2018, 2019 bear market scenario, God forbid that that happens, but... The amount of funding into teams, projects, startups, client teams that we have that are, is in dollar terms, not crypto terms, is orders of magnitude larger than we've ever had ever before. And so if you ask me, like, is crypto escape velocity? I would say yes, because now the prices of these assets mean a lot less because so many like startups and everything, all the infrastructure has so much funding behind it 
that the whole entire industry can withstand a bear market way better than it ever could ever before. So it's almost like the prices of these things almost don't matter because we are now in escape velocity. We are now building our way out of bear markets with ease. So yes, we are absolutely in escape velocity territory. I feel like this was the first year that the conversation, you know, we didn't even have the conversation in crypto around, will the government shut this whole thing down? In all my previous years in crypto, that was in the background, that was looming. Like Mm -hmm. that was actually coming from the antagonist. Well, if Bitcoin gets strong enough, then the government's just going to like deactivate it, shut it down. We're no longer having that conversation. The conversation around interacting with the government is, well, how much regulation is going to be applied to various subsectors mm-hmm. of the space, say stable right. coins or, right. or DeFi or AML KYC and crypto and these sorts of areas. No one is talking about the governments of the world banding together and actually trying to shut the whole thing off because I think there's the recognition that it's impossible. Escape velocity mm-hmm. has been reached. One of the things that I'm really, really appreciative of that did not make its way into this recent bull market from the 2017-2018 era is this common line that you would hear all the time throughout 2017 and 2018 that it could all go to zero. No one says that anymore. If it could have gone to zero, it would have done it in 2018. And so no one ever says like, hey, people say don't invest more than you can lose, but no one says it can go to zero when that used to be like a common line throughout the previous bear market. So I'm so happy that that trope has now like completely moved away from people's like headspace. It is now dead. That is great. It's definitely new this year. Uh, Let's talk about number two. So the first was crypto became a multi-trillion dollar asset class. It's something we got right. The second thing we got right is ETH. Mm -hmm. ETH showed remarkable strength relative to Bitcoin. Anyone who's been familiar with Bankless knows we're bullish on Bitcoin, knows we love Bitcoin, we think it's fantastic, but also knows that we are disproportionately overweight ETH relative Mm -hmm. to Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Like We do believe that flipping is inevitable. Uh, And ETH was super strong relative to Bitcoin this year. So ETH hit a high of 4,600. And then more importantly, the metric we're tracking, if you're tracking this, is the ratio strength. So ETH-Bitcoin ratio strength highs. Highs since, I think, uh, 2018 was the last time we saw them this high. So something else we got right, ETH was up 490% on the year versus Bitcoin, which was up 101%. What are your thoughts on this, David? Yeah, I'm pulling up the uh, ETH BTC ratio chart so I can look at the exact start of the year because Ether started 2021 at, let's see, 0.043. So for one Ether, you would get 0.043 Bitcoins. And we are currently clocking in at almost double that at 0.082. And so since the start of 2021, Ether has doubled in Bitcoin terms. Back at the start of 2021, there was still a lot of ground left to cover to like reclaim some of the highs set in the previous bear market or bull market in 2017. And Ether just did exactly that. And not only that, again, currently looks like it's primed to recover even more ground. So the amount of time that Ether has been higher than it is now, it's like 95 to 5, as in like 5% of the time it's been higher in Bitcoin terms than it is right now. 95% of the time it's been lower than what it is now. This, this is one of the big stories of 2021 is that Bitcoin got beat out by basically everything down below it in market cap. And for the second largest thing to double versus it is a significant deal because Ether can actually only double versus Bitcoin one more time before it flips it. Actually less, less than that, right? So one more doubling and it's a flip. So that's a huge story out of 2021. And that's a question of 
are we primed for the flipping uh, going to the next year? But here's one of the mistakes. I don't want to make the mistakes that maybe um, Bitcoin Maximalists made at the end of 2020, mm-hmm. which is just assuming the next year would be an extrapolation of the previous year. And if you look at this, this is the ETH Bitcoin ratio, David. Look at us mm-hmm. all in 2020. Even as DeFi was like crushing it, DeFi was breaking mm-hmm. out, proving the use case, proving product market fit for Ethereum block space. ETH was pretty flat relative to Bitcoin yeah. anyway. It was going up, but not relative to Bitcoin. ETH was depressed, yeah. And so mm-hmm. there was this idea of DeFi, not Ethereum. Do you remember that? It was mm-hmm. a, that was a yeah. common trope at the end of uh, 2020. And so I think people didn't see this going to the next year. They just thought Bitcoin would continue to dominate. And that's not what we saw. We saw a recovery on the ratio and a ton of strength, which uh, makes me wonder what's going to happen next year, which is also the reason, mm-hmm. though, David, I feel like you have to track fundamentals because, yeah. I mean, EIP 1559, look, when did that happen? August, August right? Yeah. You know, that, that accounts for some of the, the anticipation working up to EIP 1559. Mm-hmm. It's another fundamental. Next year, we're going to see fundamentals like the merge coming on board. And so mm-hmm. how does the ratio fare in the face of that, it's something we're going to be tracking. But let's get to number three. Another, I think, contrarian idea that we've held for a very long time since the very beginnings of the Bankless Newsletter in the podcast is this idea that ETH is money. And that had a breakout year as well. This narrative hit the mainstream. EIP 1559 was just an idea when we first wrote about it. In fact, you first wrote about it in 2019. Do you remember this article? The final puzzle piece to ETH's monetary policy, August 10th, 2019, talking about EIP 1559. It took two years for that thing to come to fruition. But from so much that I've read this year, not just on the bankless side, but industry reports, investors talking about ETH as an asset class, even like bankers talking about ETH, they refer to it as a monetary asset. Some even refer to it as an internet bond, which we've talked about for a long time. And all of them refer to ETH as a store of value. So that is now the commonly accepted narrative for Ether as an asset. That is not just gas, it's a store of value asset. So this year, I feel like the narrative flipped and ETH actually became money. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I think, dare I say that the narrative flipped and ETH became money and displaced Bitcoin as money. Because Bitcoin is now just digital gold. Like that's what it is when you read the big reports. You know, Bitcoin is sound money is like a common trope from Bitcoiners. But like, you don't really hear that in mainstream. That's not a meme that broke out. You know, you don't really hear that ETH is money uh, chanted by like mainstream either. But what you do hear is Ether as a currency of the Ethereum network, which is what it's always been. But people are also wrapping their heads around the Ethereum network being able to do basically anything. And if Ether is the currency for that network, then, you know, therefore ETH is money. And so just a growing acceptance. And this definitely is coming on the backs of the point we were just talking about, which is Ether appreciating versus Bitcoin. That's definitely like tailwinds into this narrative that Ether is just the currency that you need to use to do the things in the crypto world. So that's just becoming more and more just embedded into many, many people's heads. And also, I would also credit having so many metrics to look at when it comes to Ether, the currency, especially when blockchains are open, permissionless, transparent ledgers. We have so many numbers. We have Ether issuance, Ether burn rate, total fees, network security, volume, liquidity, so many things that we can directly look at in terms of what Ether is as an asset. And these metrics that we are able to view just backstop, put up foundations on the narrative, on the meme that ETH is money. Yeah, even the burn rate is a constant reminder that, hey, like, this is a mm-hmm. scarce digital mm-hmm. asset that 
is becoming more disinflationary as a, as a function of the economy that it resides within, exactly. which is exactly what you need to have a money. And monies well, are tied to economies. So that brings me to a question because I think this is an interesting lesson. What's more important or which comes first, the meme or the fundamentals is sort of a question, right? Mm-hmm. And in some ways, the meme came first for this. You know, like eat this money, we started saying mm-hmm. it before it was fully true, but yet there were hints of it being true in the very early stages. We just you know, saw the vision a little bit earlier. But what do you think? Which comes first, the meme or the fundamentals? In this particular scenario, fundamentals absolutely came first. Other currencies, memes come first, like Doge, for example. <laughs> the fundamentals are the meme. But with Ethereum, the memes came out of a fundamental truth about what Ether is in relationship to Ethereum. Well, I feel like what happens is the meme always gets tested by the fundamentals. Yes. And like memes and fundamentals are are related, but the only way the narrative can last through a, a cycle is if it's like reinforced and backstopped and proven out gone through the forgery of uh, fundamentals. And that's what's happened with this meme. So number four, it rained airdrops. All right, we said this would happen. There'd be a ton of airdrops for 2021. And indeed there were, what were some of your favorite airdrops of the year, David? The Tornado Cash airdrop was lovely. The one inch airdrop was also fantastic. But of course, the big winner of the year has got to be ENS, the ENS airdrop. It was fair, it was distributed. It was a different kind of airdrop. ENS, the token, isn't really like the other tokens that are out there because of just how close to public goods the Ethereum name service system is. And it's different breed in my mind, similar to Uniswap, similar to Gitcoin, but also meaningfully separated in the fact that it wasn't supposed to reward early users. It was supposed to decentralize power over the ENS naming system. I feel like the ENS airdrop that definitely takes the cake as the airdrop of 2021, Uniswap being the airdrop of 2020. Getting airdropped responsibilities, nothing like it. <laughs> We've got a <laughs> uh, a ton of other potential airdrops as well. We published the Ultimate Guide to Airdrops, one of our biggest, most mm-hmm. popular content pieces of the year. So make sure you check that out as well as for Bankless Premium members. David, let's talk about the fifth one and last one in this section of things that we got right. And we got right that DeFi usage would continue to go up, but like- With an asterisk. Yeah, this is like barely. We just like barely made (laughs) it uh, above the bar. We squeaked by on this one. Uh, Total locked value got above 100 billion. Why didn't it go further is kind of a question. Why didn't DeFi have another explosive year? I, I guess we'll get into that in a little bit, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think the answer to the question is like so much about crypto is based on attention. And if your thing doesn't have attention on it, then like you are suffering. Attention and market cap go hand in hand in the crypto world, especially in the short term. NFTs are the most attention grabbing thing that exists out there. Yeah, people forgot about DeFi. (laughs) Uh, And DeFi is just kind of like now like the boomer side of crypto is like, oh, boring old (laughs) DeFi. Like there aren't any JPEGs related to that. I think that's what happened. I think NFTs stole all of DeFi's uh, attention. That's so funny. Yield farms are out. NFTs are in. That's what Mm -hmm. happened. So those are the five things we got right. Let's talk about the five things that surprised us. Because there were a lot of those. There's always a lot of curveballs. I feel like for as many things as we got right, there were some surprises. And a lot of the surprises were surprises of timing. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's talk about these five things. The first one is NFTs. They just blew up this year faster than I think any of us thought Mm -hmm. maybe even faster than the biggest nft bulls we know thought they would like it all happened at once that's what they said we've been bullish Mm -hmm. nfts for a while right 
But it was always like, oh yeah, someday these would be cool. Like someday these will be meaningful and we'll be able to you know, bring our sword out of World of Warcraft into something else. And then like it just happened all at once in 2021. NFTs went mainstream. We had Beeple, we got CryptoPunks, we got Bored Apes, we got OpenSea. They went mainstream in a way that DeFi never has, right? As we, we said before, NFTs got us on Jimmy Fallon and SNL and Snoop. Not DeFi, not talking about Bitcoin monetary policy. It was NFTs. I want to hear about like your learning lessons from that. Why do you think we missed that? Why do you think that surprised us? You know, always in the back of my head, I was like, man, this DeFi thing is so fantastic. I can trade assets on Uniswap. Like I can do it all myself. I can self-custody this stuff. Like this is great. But in the back of my head, I was like, does everyone else think that this is great? Yeah. And like in the back of my <laughs> mind, I was like, you guys got to try out this DeFi thing. It's so revolutionary. It's going to change the world, which has and will continue to do. But when it, again, when it comes to popular culture, people just don't care about finance. No one's going on like late shows and talking about their savings account ever. Right. Like it's never happened. No, no. I think the thing that we didn't put the dots together is how simple it is to ask someone to trade JPEGs. It's like, hey, if I slap on this financial asset onto this JPEG, would you trade it? And like society gave a resounding, oh, yeah. Oh, we'll totally trade those things. Didn't that surprise you though? Yes, a hundred percent. But in hindsight, it's so easy to sit, just look at it as like, oh, put a token behind pictures. Like again, it's one of those things where like I middle bell curved it so hard and if I should have been on the far left being like, oh yeah, picture tokens. Like, duh. <laughs> it's hilarious too because I feel like we heard the bull case super early. Do you remember mm -hmm. when Andrew Steinwald mm -hmm. and Jake mm -hmm. came on? We did a bull case for NFTs. I think this was in September of last year, right after DeFi summer. And they were like, oh yeah, guys, like NFTs are gonna be way bigger than DeFi. Right. Just you wait, you'll right. see. Totally. And we're like, okay, cool. But like explain right. what an NFT is and why is that more valuable? I remember you talking about a picture of mm -hmm. art that you had on the wall and you were like, hey, this is a one of one, but mm -hmm. like, how does that translate right. into the digital world? What, right. what about the kind of the right click save aspect? Mm -hmm. And like not one year later, but not just you and I are fully bought into nfts and the value proposition but like the whole rest of society is mm -hmm. i never anticipated it would happen so quickly yeah and again it just boils down to the simplicity of nfts like you get to own a picture like don't think about it too hard and society didn't and that's why they got accepted do you know the other thing i was thinking is um DeFi, money these types of conversations not only is it easier to understand but you know nfts are far less threatening than those things to incumbents mm -hmm. right right so yeah. mainstream brands they didn't have to worry about regulatory issues with NFTs. They could just use their digital brand equity and IP and issue them as NFTs. Social media, like the Twitters of the world, for example, just add NFTs no as, as features. Yeah. No disruption. Reddit, fully embrace it. It's great. It's another competitive advantage. Christie's and Sotheby's made hundreds of millions in sales by, by selling totally. NFTs. So like, oh yeah, sure, NFTs, like, yeah. Uh -huh, right. Easy, what a gift. NFTs were a gift from the crypto world to the rest of the world. And everyone else was like, oh yeah, I love it. Uh, everything else is like, okay, we're going to come and eat your lunch about crypto. <laughs> Even like the regulators, right? Mm -hmm. Crypto is scary. Bitcoin is for drug dealers and terrorists or whatever. But NFTs, man, they're just like cute. NFTs are for everyone. Like yep. you can't be angry about them. So I totally underestimated the surface area of NFTs. Um, but let's get to the second one. And this is Axie Infinity. And it deserves its own category in and of itself because crypto gaming took off in a way, but only because Axie Infinity just like 
plowed the door wide open for all of these other crypto games. It melted faces, a few things. Biggest Discord server in the world, bigger than Fortnite, okay? Revenue in the billions this year. Millions of players from all over the world. AXS, that's their native token, went from $30 million to $8 billion last year, okay? $30 million to $8 billion. What's going on here? And why were we so surprised by this? Yeah, it's this very rudimentary like game. It looks like a flash game, looks like a browser game. It has crypto elements into it. Like so like looking at it is like how is this ever going to catch on? Like who's actually going to play this? Like gamers want more than just this very simple like, you know, flash game. Turns out that gamers are not the right target audience. And it turns out there's a number of other people, a larger, much larger population in the world that doesn't have super souped up GPUs in their gaming computers. And they just casually game on their laptops or whatever you know hardware that they have in their country. And because of the economic game behind it, that is the real story. It's not the visual gameplay game side of things it's the economic game that underlied axie infinity it's the open economy it's the gdp of the economy yeah. it's providing employment opportunities for people that's the discovery right. it's wasn't had anything to do with the actual game itself it had to do with the economics of the system that's what got adoption in my mind when you talk about crypto gaming you still kind of think about your old mental models of games which are like call of duty super high graphics intuitive gameplay like no crypto gaming studios don't optimize for that sort of thing at least right now they are optimizing for the economics and that is a brand new paradigm shift that i think surprised everyone the other thing that made this take off i think was a catalyst because we were talking about axie infinity at the beginning of 2020 right mm -hmm. we thought it was it's cool right. we just had no idea it would take off in the way that it did proof of concept yeah proof mm -hmm. of concept like there'll be other crypto games but this is one of them we were really bullish on it at the time but like not like this. We didn't expect all of this. But when we had Jiho on earlier, who's uh, one of the co-founders of Axie, he talked about Layer 2, basically. Not quite Layer 2, but the Rowan sidechain as being a massive growth catalyst for this, right? So at some level, what we discovered in 2021 is that high block space fees were the thing holding Axie back and holding crypto gaming back. And once you unleash all of this, and provide cheap block space, then it absolutely explodes. So I think that's something that happened too. Let's talk about the third one. Web3 became a narrative, all right? I was not a fan of Web3 back in 2017, 2018, because it felt like it was associated with like all of these unrealistic ideas, these naive ideas like, oh, we're going to create a white paper for decentralized Uber or like decentralized Twitter, and we're going to raise an ICO. But today I see something completely different in Web3. Like it feels much more real. We've got the creator economy. We've got the ownership economy. We've got this self-sovereign identity concept. We have NFTs and crypto as like a digital property layer for the metaverse. Uh, what happened with Web3 becoming a narrative in 2021? And why wasn't that on our radar? I think Web3 is really riding on the back of the fundamentals of the crypto industry. So we had Web3 in 2017, as you said, and it meant many, many different things like decentralized Uber, decentralized Ticketmaster. And then there's also components of it, like the broader Ethereum ecosystem, where it's literally trying to be at the decentralized internet, like decentralized file sharing, decentralized file storage. The Web3 meme wasn't solidified. And I think slowly over the years, and especially as the industry built itself in the bear market and actually established meaningful fundamentals, like the fundamentals of DeFi that are meaningfully strong and real and, and stark contrast to the fundamentals of the ICO movement, which are non-existent. So the Web3 meme, the Web3 narrative, 
was able to stand on the shoulders of actual true fundamentals of the crypto industry. And I actually kind of think that Web3 and crypto are almost completely synonymous. But Web3 is just like crypto throws a lot of people for a tizzy, like it's the crypto world. It's got some negative connotations, kind of like, you know, the dark shadowy super coder connotation. Web3 is illustrates a lot more things. Like we already have the web. We already know what the web is. Web3 implies some continuation of that. We, Ryan and I have been talking with a bunch of funds like A16Z and, and uh, just regulators, people on Capitol Hill who are actually doing real research into the term Web3 and how it lands with just people all over the world, demographics and politicians. And it's overwhelmingly positive. Everyone loves the term Web3. It is the correct and great branding for the crypto world moving forward that doesn't have the negative connotation of the word crypto. And I think it's kind of a populist term. Web3 is a populist term. It's a pushback against Facebook. It's a pushback against any top-down monolithic Silicon Valley company. And I think more and more and more Web3 is going to become a household name, is going to hopefully resemble a brighter future of the internet that people wish that we had in the last like decade or so. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I do think Web3 and crypto are synonymous, but not everyone agrees with that, yeah. right? It's particularly strong Bitcoiners, Bitcoin maximalists, I would say. Jack Dorsey, a number of tweets earlier this week saying, hey, Web3 is something different. There's Bitcoin and Web3 is this thing owned by a bunch of venture capitalists. Mm -hmm. And he's like distancing himself from that, which is interesting that the Bitcoin community, at least the strong maximalist community, is not, not on board adopting this term Web3. You know, we'll see how that plays out. Let's come back to this concept because we got to emphasize it was something that we were super bullish on going into 2021 and didn't quite pan out in the way that we hoped or thought it would. That is DeFi. DeFi wasn't the golden child this year. That's number four. We talked about the first reason for that, which is like everyone was distracted by NFTs, of course. But, you know, just to give you some sense, the DPI, which is an index of, you know, the Aves and YFIs, makers of the world, the blue chip DeFi assets was only up 115% on the year. Okay. That's barely above Bitcoin's rise. And, you know, you think an asset class would be far higher beta than something like Bitcoin, like DeFi overperformed in 2021. I jotted down a couple of other reasons for this besides everyone was distracted by NFTs. Another reason I think, David, is because this industry is just a bunch of fractals on fractals and fractals, right? There's a familiar pattern in crypto that goes like this. Builders build for years. No one will pay attention to them. There's like no market reaction. Then suddenly, in this violent upward burst, the market's like, oh, shit, this is a big deal. We got to reprice this asset class. And they, they FOMO in, they pile in, price shoots up, and then price overshoots fundamentals, and then it tends to either drop or flatten out, stop growing at the exponential pace, attention moves to other sectors, and then we go back to step one, where builders keep building with years for, with no market reaction. I feel like that's what was happening in 2021. Like, DeFi builders were building. They were hustling. And that's when I start to get bullish in the asset class, when the builders stay and they keep building, but the attention has drifted elsewhere because that's where I think the biggest um, opportunities are, are for purchasing. And I feel like DeFi is in that zone right now. The other thing I feel like this holding DeFi back is we still don't have cheap block space, right? And we have alternative layer ones and side chains and things like this, but we haven't reached the golden age of uh, layer twos yet. And I think that is coming, but that's been holding DeFi back and hindering it for a while. What are your thoughts on that? To elaborate on that last point, number four, DeFi wasn't the golden child. I think we also have to add in the label that Ethereum DeFi wasn't the golden child because DeFi did take off elsewhere. A lot of 
things quickly moved on to Binance Smart Chain. Uh, and then Solana, activity on Solana picked up and then also Avalanche. We thought there was going to be this world of DeFi layer two summer where tokens and yield farming on layer twos would happen. Turns out that, you know, if you go look at when Avalanche started doing uh, token incentives, as in uh, come do yield farming stuff on the Avalanche L1, as soon as they started doing token incentives, which is what kicked off DeFi summer, by the way, that's when Avalanche started to really get into its heyday. And so I think Ethereum DeFi wasn't the golden child. DeFi did take off, but it took off more horizontally across L1s. Again, exactly what you said, looking for cheaper block space than it did vertically on already existing DeFi ecosystems on the Ethereum L1. So I think you're totally right. DeFi wasn't the golden child because Ethereum didn't have the cheap block space needed to really allow for experimentation and innovation. The other bright spot for DeFi was this like DeFi 2.0 projects, mm -hmm. like projects that were playing around with their token economics and doing some tweaks on standard DeFi, like making the protocols more permissionless, like Olympus, Tokamak, Rari come to mind for that. That was another bright spot. But yeah, overall, DeFi was not the golden child. But that gets us to number five, which is kind of the point that you were making. I don't think we anticipated going to 2020, at least the degree to which this happened, we didn't anticipate. And that is this, alt layer one tokens pumped okay they went absolutely crazy i'm talking things like solana luna from the terra network ava from avalanche we saw some adoption in terms of nft and financial projects some of them kind of copies from ethereum some of them sort of net new yeah these tokens just absolutely destroyed all other everything else in their path right it's like uh far outperformed bitcoin of course and also outperformed ethereum and ethereum had a ether had a fantastic year and so we started hearing narratives like this it's now a multi-chain world you remember the suzu thing ethereum abandoned its users right ethereum is getting leapfrogged by better technology these are some of the narratives that partially follow the token pumps but also maybe partially cause them depends for me this is like a point of reflection right for us right so like what is happening here because the bankless thesis is very much, we have these three asset categories. We've got, you know, monies and capital asset and commodities. And I'm looking at these token valuations and I'm asking myself, like, why are they pumping so hard? What is the value based on? Are these assets actually becoming money? Okay, that's one thing. Is there a monetary premium? Are we pricing in some future transaction fee growth? Because when you look at the fees, block space fees generated, it's like nothing on these all the other alternative layer ones relative to Ether. So is that why? Are these chains just like assuming that they're going to flip in uh, Ethereum and be long-term competitors to Ethereum? Or, or do you take the Suzu three hours capital approach and it's like, none of that matters, okay? It's just memes all the way down and like don't have such hubris bankless guys. We don't really know what fundamentals are in this crypto industry at all. And the market's just showing you why it's foolish to assume you actually think there's a thing that exists called fundamentals. All right. That's what they would say. And these are some of the biggest questions I think facing investors going to 2021 and facing sort of the bankless thesis and us on the journey. I have a few thoughts on this, but what are some of your thoughts, David? Again, taking a hindsight perspective at 2021, if we all thought 2021 was going to be the year that we thought that it would be at the start of 2021, then block space would have been the thing to invest in. If crypto is everyone to go mainstream and everyone's going to come onto the blockchain and do their crypto things, what is going to be the most scarce thing? And that is block space. So I think it was kind of naive to think that like the block space on Bitcoin and, and, and Ethereum would have been like sufficient to supply 
all of the adopters of crypto in 2021 with sufficient block space to do so. And I think people like you and me is like, oh, well, if we were presented with that critique, it's like, hey, Ethereum doesn't have enough block space to support a whole entire bull market. Like what's going to happen? We'd be like, oh, there's going to be layer twos where there's like almost infinite block space. We can just go there. Right. I think we right. just mistimed it. Uh, L2s are certainly here. Their block space is certainly adding more to Ethereum. If you go to ETPS, Dot info, we can actually see how much actual block space was added to the Ethereum blockchain with just rollups. And it's actually not that much. It's a decent percentage, but it's still in its infancy. And the alt layer ones were able to go to market with more block space faster than Ethereum layer twos were. That race against time, I think, was won by the alternative layer ones before Ethereum layer twos could really add their supply of block space to, you know, the global total supply of block space that, you know, a bull market totally demands. And so I think that's what happened. I do think had that the pendulum has shifted far too in the favor of alternative layer ones. And with the advent of, you know, Optimism removing its whitelist, Arbitrum Nitro coming out, Optimism also releasing the breaks, uh, Starkware and Starknet happening, the pendulum is going to shift in the opposite direction because it's super overweight L1s right now. Like you said, the token pumping is just pricing a ton of growth into these alt layer ones when they've definitely supplied the world with enough block space, but they have not at all addressed the monetary economics of their L1 asset, which is a battle that Ethereum definitely won in 2021. And the alt layer ones still have to fight that fight. That's why I feel like calling uh, the market maybe um, a little wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I know that's dangerous to do. And Suzu would be like, who the hell are you to like call the market wrong? But I feel like your point is very well made that like, being bullish on block space is definitely something you should have been in 2021, right? Totally get that point. But there's a difference between block space and actually purchasing the underlying asset of that blockchain. Because like those two things are different. If the blockchain is not generating sufficient fees to make to turn the asset of that chain into a capital asset, productive asset that is harvesting those fees or turning it into a money somehow, then why should the asset be worth tens of billions of dollars? I feel like maybe what's also happened is people in the market are just saying, oh, okay, Ethereum's worth $500 billion. And what is the TLV of Solana or Avalanche? Okay, it's you know 5 10% of that. Okay, then we should, you know, we're about 5, 10% of the value of Ethereum. They're calling it a day. That's like the depth of the analysis, right? And I feel like that is a flawed assumption. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is the wrong fundamental to be thinking about. That's something I'm thinking a lot about going to 2022. And we'll talk a bit about that later. All right, guys, that was five things that we got right in 2021, as well as five things about 2021 that also surprised us. Coming up in the second half of the show, we are going to get into five mental models that we learned from 2021 and how they project into the future and also five bets going into 2022, what we think 2022 will look like. And then overall, we'll have a discussion about the market. Will the market also continue into 2022 and some other conversations of this nature? So stay tuned for all those conversations. We will get to them as soon as we get back from some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Alchemix is one of the coolest new DeFi apps on the scene. It introduces self-paying loans, allowing you to spend and save at the same time. Deposit the DAI stablecoin into the Alchemix vault in order to get an advance on the interest it generates. Borrow up to 50% of the total amount of your deposited DAI in the form of AL USD stablecoin. Here's the craziest part. 
the loan pays itself back and you cannot be liquidated. Unlock your assets potential in the ultimate DeFi savings account. And brand new to Alchemix is the ETH vault where you can deposit ETH into the application, borrow AlETH against your deposits while having your advance gradually paid back over time. V2 is rapidly approaching, which will allow for even more collateral types plus a variety of yield strategies to choose from. Harness the power of Alchemix at alchemix.fi. That's A-L-C-H-E-M-I-X dot F-I. Follow Alchemix on Twitter at alchemixfi and join the Discord in order to get involved with the Alchemix community and also Alchemix governance. Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that's going to completely change how we use DeFi and NFTs. And now it's live and has over 100 projects deployed. Gas fees on Ethereum L1 suck. Too many people want to use Ethereum and it doesn't have enough capacity for all of us. And that's why teams like Arbitrum have been hard at work developing layer two solutions that makes transactions on Ethereum cheap and instant. Arbitrum increases Ethereum's throughput by orders of magnitude at a fraction of the cost of what we are used to paying. When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of security and decentralization. This is why people are calling this Ethereum's broadband moment, where we get to add performance onto decentralization and security. If you're a developer and you want to save on gas costs and overall make a better user experience, go to developers.offchainlabs.com to get started building on Arbitrum. And if you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps being built on Arbitrum. Many DeFi applications on the Ethereum L1 are migrating over to Layer 2s like Arbitrum, and some are even skipping over the Layer 1s entirely and deploying directly on Layer 2. There's so many apps coming online to Arbitrum, so go to bridge.arbitrum.io now and start bridging over your ETH or any of the tokens listed, and start having the DeFi or NFT experience that you've always wanted. We got to get to some of the mental models we unlocked in 2021. And there were so many on Bankless. I don't think we got to all of them, but let's talk about just uh, five of them anyway. So five new mental models for 2021. You know, let's start with this one. Do you remember that episode we did all the way back earlier in the year? I think it was like February with Justin Drake. The first Justin Drake episode, which already blew people's mind, which wasn't even yeah. the episode that is known to blow people's mind by Justin Drake. It was a great episode. And it was a key episode for me and um, my learnings for 2020. And this is um, the bull case for cryptography. It was an episode not about price, not about economics, just about raw cryptography and the magic that cryptography brings. And here's the thing I learned from that episode. Basically, these are all trust machines. These blockchains that we're building, they're all trust machines. And the things that actually scale them, it's cryptography. That's the magic. That's the solution. Always has been. Uh, cryptographic, always has been. Cryptographic cryptography breakthroughs are the only things that actually scale blockchains. Everything else is kind of a hack. So that's what that episode taught me. I mean, there's a lot to it. We just refer you to the episode. Go back and listen to that one. But what that mental model made me is you know, more bearish on high transaction throughput chains that just don't use cryptography to scale. They use high node requirements to scale, right? Because that's kind of a hack. It's kind of a shortcut. And it makes me very bullish cryptographic breakthroughs. So things like ZK rollup chains seem to be the future and are much more exciting to me. Any reflections on uh, that mental model, cryptography being the only real breakthrough for performance. Yeah, the line that Justin Drake left that is stuck in my head is that if you can't solve it with cryptography, then you can do it with crypto economics. But that's prioritizing cryptography, as in like you got to really, really try to solve your thing using cryptography alone. And only when you know that you can't, can you then rely on crypto economics. Adding in crypto economics in order to solve a problem is, again, a compromise on a complete 
solution to that problem, with which is solving through cryptography. And remember, cryptography is compression technology. Using cryptography, you can compress gigabytes of data down to a very small hash. It's just a matter of how you do that inside of the context of the system that you're trying to create. If you can't do it, then you use crypto economics. But the idea is that it's always cryptography first. And that's why Ethereum has always been a cryptography first, a cryptographer first ecosystem. The world of cryptocurrency is always going to be won out by the system that has the best cryptography that powers it. Uh, and so that's why cryptography is really important. Yeah, I feel like I developed a holy reverence for cryptography mm -hmm. this year and, and partially through that episode. Go back and listen to this. The second mental model I feel like we unlocked is this mental model of legitimacy, in particular, legitimacy as the only scarce resource. That is the thing these social systems we call blockchains are actually producing and actually optimizing for. Legitimacy is like a, a social technology, mm -hmm. okay? It's like governments use it, you know, religions use it. Social consensus. It's a yeah. social consensus technology, and it's one of the- Layer zero. It's layer zero. We'll get to that soon. But like, it's one of the most overlooked and most powerful coordination mechanisms and systems that we have as a species. It's the reason why Bitcoin is a store of value and Bitcoin diamond isn't, right? It's the reason why Ethereum has a larger market cap than Ethereum Classic. It's the reason why Doge pumps Binance chain, you know, rises based on performance. It's the reason why CryptoPunks are more valuable than Pudgy Penguins. This is a nine cat. This is a famous internet meme. It's like 10 years old. But if I just right-click save this and issued this as an NFT, it'd be practically worthless, okay? But the creator of Ninecat, the person who actually has the legitimacy to issue this as an NFT, can issue it, and it's worth 300 ETH, and it sold for 300 ETH this year. And it's not like a little POAP that you get, like, oh, you have the legitimacy. It's not an actual asset. There is no, like, known tangible form of legitimacy. Exactly. It's just raw legitimacy. It's just what's in people's brains. Yep, absolutely. And so I found myself, this was an episode, by the way, that we did with Vitalik, who wrote a blog post mm -hmm. that we kind of parsed apart and, you know, understood what legitimacy actually means. And he talked about brute force as one path to legitimacy, continuity, fairness. There's lots of other things that you need to get your mind wrapped around. But I found myself, once I unlocked that mental model, David, I'm no longer asking the question of, okay, what's the path to the most secure blockchain? The technical side of things, like how does the blockchain get there? I've now started asking, what's the path to building the most legitimate blockchain? That is a mind shift that I didn't have. It's a different question. It's yeah. a different question, mm -hmm. and I think a more fundamental and important question, and I'm bringing that with me into 2022. I don't think this theory of legitimacy could have come from any other sector in the world other than crypto. Crypto is like the proving grounds and like the test bed for finding legitimate things versus illegitimate things. We've seen illegitimate things like left and right, like, for example, in my mind, funks which are crypto punks, but mirror images of each other. And now they're trying to like gain some sort of adoption by just being the mirror image of a crypto punk. Not legitimate in my mind. There's a bunch of things like that. Tron, for example, has its white paper just copied and pasted from the Ethereum IPFS white paper. Like mm, not legitimate. And that's why, among other reasons, why Tron didn't really work out over the long term. I think one of the greatest things that crypto has to export is our values and our culture. And comes with that a concrete definition and appreciation for the concept of legitimacy. It's also uh, a concept that you can export to the real world, right? You think about mm -hmm. the, the yeah. institutions, the existing legacy institutions, their legitimacy is eroding relative to some of these new crypto systems. And that's interesting to watch as well as they try to grapple to reestablish their legitimacy. What will they do? Will they, will they use brute force? 
for example, in some cases, and maybe it depends on the jurisdiction of the government. Let's talk about the third mental model we unlocked. This is a big one, man, but we haven't talked about it in a while. ETH is ultrasound money. A series of three podcasts, actually two podcasts, we did with Justin Drake on this, the the largest, most famous being that you could start with, the podcast just simply called Ultrasound Money with Justin Drake. And the simple case that was made on that podcast and the articles that you wrote about that podcast was ETH is on track to become the best monetary asset the world has ever seen, okay? Bitcoin started with this fixed 21 million supply cap was not the optimal system to maximize value and network security. Ethereum's approach is better. That is kind of the contrarian thesis that we put forward with uh, ultrasound money. And I think if you own ETH, if you're looking at ETH as an asset, this is a required listing, a vitally important podcast and mental model to download and see if you agree with. And I feel like this one's held up pretty well, David. Yeah, I'm going to try and give a very short summary and then a prediction for 2022 about this is Ether is a groundbreaking new relationship between an economy and its own money, where currently we have the dollar and the United States economy, where the United States GDP, it trends up over time. Meanwhile, the value of the dollar in real terms goes down over time. So we have a discrepancy there, like economy goes up, but value of the dollar goes down. Then we have Bitcoin. And if the Bitcoin economy goes up, the Bitcoin supply stays completely the same. Therefore, the value of Bitcoin goes up. Bitcoin economy goes up, Bitcoin value goes up, Bitcoin supply stays the same. Ethereum, if the Ethereum GDP, the Ethereum economy goes up in value, the rate at which Ether is burnt also increases. And also the value of Ether goes up even more so. Value of the Ethereum GDP goes up, the scarcity of Ether, the asset, also goes up. And that is something that's brand new as a function of Ethereum's monetary policy, monetary system that we've never seen before. Ryan, I think in 2022, we will not see too much of this talk happening because that is going to be coming around after what I think will be coming in 2022, which is you know general institutional and market adoption of layer twos and having the economy of Ethereum spread outwards more horizontally across these layer twos, and then having these layer twos have their own internally native, interesting economies. And then once we have this very vibrant multi-layer two, multi-chain like economy flowing around Ethereum with yeah, stablecoin flows and Ether payment flows and layer twos buying L1 block space with Ether, then we will get to see deeper and more interesting analysis into Ether's role in the Ethereum economy. And then I think in 2023-ish, people will start to like really refocus in on the relationship between Ethereum, the economy, and Ether, the asset. Because there's going to be so much data to look at and people like data. Yeah, I totally agree. And this is, I can't underscore your point enough. This is brand new. We've never seen an economy act like this, right? So, you know, this is as if a government is taxing you and it takes all the tax revenue based on usage, based on GDP of the economy, and then burns Mm -hmm. all of that money it collects removes it from circulation effectively giving yeah, it back giving it back to basically any of the holders of you know its underlying bonds right mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. so super exciting and i totally agree with you we're gonna have so much more data on this it's gonna become self-evident we don't have to keep saying it anymore okay <laughs> <laughs> that'll be that'll be the day let's talk about this fourth mental model that i feel like was i don't want to say it's our biggest mental model of the year but it was for me personally i will say that and that's the idea of modular chains modular blockchains and the idea Uh, contrasting modular blockchains with monolithic chains. The writings of Polynaya were key for me to sort of understand this, and I think for both of us, and to come to the conclusion that modular blockchains are the best scaling solution for crypto. 
We put out a podcast about this called Ultra Scalable Ethereum and an episode called Modular versus Monolithic Blockchains. There's an article and there's also a, a podcast about this. But the idea that Polynaya put forward was refreshingly, I guess, pragmatic and utilitarian to me. Because so often when crypto people talk about the value of decentralization, and you and I are guilty of this too, right? They'll talk about it almost in like religious terms or in social value terms, right? And it's like, why should you care about decentralization? Well, think about the greater good, okay? Don't sacrifice these temporal things for the long term. Don't be seduced by the dark, like black power of centralization, wealth creation opportunities. Think about future generations. It almost sounds like religious. But Polly Nye's argument for decentralization is very different. It's just like a... It's very technical. Yeah, it's a technical and economic argument. It's like decentralization is just the best strategy for survival. Mm -hmm. And it's going to outcompete all the more centralized chains. And why does he say this? Because of this modular blockchain thesis. Because modular chains will easily outscalable monolithic chains. And modular chains invert the scalability trilemma. So... It effectively rewards decentralized chains. With more scale. With more scale. More decentralization equals more scale. It's just a super pragmatic, non-religious. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you want to be the most scalable chain? You have to be the most decentralized chain then. And like, mic drop. Yeah. And so that was such a cool unlock for me. And we're not going to have time to talk about what we mean by modular chains versus monolithic chains. If you haven't heard that episode and read that article... It's homework for you to do. I think this is an important mental model that you need to bring with you in 2022, because if it's right, it will shape, reshape everything in crypto. What are your thoughts on this, David? Yeah. One quick thought is that going into Ethereum after sharding and proof of stake, the final fully fledged version of Ethereum that we see on the horizon, that's actually not one thing. The proof of stake validators are different from the data shards, are different from the layer twos. They're all different modular components that only when you stitch them all together is that Ethereum. So unlike a monolithic blockchain where you can point to like one computer saying like, well, that computer is doing the execution. It's also doing the, the data storage. It's also doing the validation. It's also doing all the consensus, all that stuff. That's a monolithic chain. And with a modular blockchain, there's so many different modules that there isn't actually one thing about Ethereum. It's very, it's like itself is even decentralized. The actual construction of the blockchain in the construction of the blockchain is decentralized of a decentralized blockchain network. It, it gets really weird. It's very emergent. Very emergent. Yeah. yeah. And so overall, this is going to be, I think, a, a theme of 2022 is that, you know, is it going to be the monolithic L1s that brute force themselves into relevancy? Or is it going to be the modular systems that pragmatically and practically scale themselves out? And, you know, for us, what this makes us, I think, from a thesis perspective is bullish rollups, mm -hmm. bullish Ethereum roadmap, mm -hmm. bullish modular chains, whether it's Ethereum or some other chain, bullish decentralization, mm -hmm. and bearish monolithic chains, mm -hmm. at least until they embrace their role as maybe an execution layer or something to that effect. Go listen to that episode if you had no idea what we were just talking about. Go listen to that modular versus monolithic blockchains episode. It is incredibly important to bring with you into the next year. Um, the fifth and final mental model of our top five mental models is this one. We're living in a crypto renaissance. The episode with Josh Rosenthal. David, could you like give a synopsis of that episode? It was probably my favorite episode that we've ever recorded of any year. I know you feel similarly about it. Why do you like it? What's in that episode? Yeah, I think the reason why everyone loved that episode is because it's a story. 
humans love stories. And kind of in, in the same vein as you were talking about with decentralization and polynomial and modular blockchains, like it's a story, but it's also a very technical and well backed up story with actual evidence, with actual real fundamentals behind it. So like all things, it's a great meme, but there's actual fundamentals behind it. So yeah, we're living in a crypto renaissance. It's a great meme to tell your family. It's like, oh yeah, crypto is going to bring in, usher in a new renaissance, something of, of equal magnitude to the old renaissance. Yeah, like the one that you studied in high school, you're muted. That will also make your family think you're crazy, which is again, another fun talking point. Yes. <laughs> right. But at least you can show them this story. And also one thing I learned in 2021, Ryan, is that stories do way better for onboarding than like technical arguments. Yeah. What is crypto? What is a blockchain? How's a blockchain work? That are those pieces of information and content have their place. It's really stories that embed meaning and significance into people's brains. And so the TLDR of the Crypto Renaissance podcast, even though you absolutely need to listen to the whole thing, is that there are two technologies that triggered the creation of the Renaissance. One was double entry bookkeeping, which is basically democratizing and decentralizing the concept of finance into the average everyday individual's brains. And also the printing press, democratizing the freedom of information and the availability of information and also the low cost of reproducing information. So that's what triggered this great wealth creation and wealth uh, distribution event in the Renaissance, allowing everyone to any and everyone to be their own bank. Double entry bookkeeping allows you to be your own bank. That's what it does. Slowly over the year, over 500, 600 years, that became centralized into the current banking system that we have today. And now we have another set of decentralized technologies that allows a Renaissance 2.0 or the crypto Renaissance. And that is the internet, the new age printing press, and also blockchain technology, which is the new age double entry bookkeeping. And these same two technologies, which are one's about information, one's about finance, allows individual rights, individual sovereignty, individual power to create and spread wealth as the individual sees fit. Uh, and so without any hyperbole, we are living in the crypto renaissance. I absolutely agree. And, you know, the Renaissance is an exciting time. It's a time of turmoil as well. People look at the Renaissance as rose-colored glasses, but there were some institutions that had a hard time. But on the on the other hand, we had new governance systems that arose, like fledgling democracies and nation states. Culture really bloomed during the Renaissance. A new class of Medici creating a world of economic opportunity. And I think that's the takeaway from that episode with Josh Rosenthal and this mental model of the crypto Renaissance. Like, we're here now. So, like... What are you doing to be part of the new crypto Medici, right? Like that's a great place to be if you're an individual on the journey. And so bullish crypto, bullish crypto Medici, this is an episode that's bullish humanity and bullish optimism, which is something we've talked a lot about on Bankless lately. The only thing it's bearish, David, is pessimism. If you are short humanity, like... Oof. GTFO, man. It's like, get out of here because that's not what yeah. we're doing in the crypto renaissance. So it's a very optimistic lens through which to view all of crypto. You know what also came out of the, the renaissance, the actual OG renaissance in the 1600s? The Dutch East India Company. That's true. Yeah. And you know what? I think the new Dutch East India Company today, DAOs. DAOs, yeah. The new capital formation structures, right? These DAOs. Totally. There are two other mental models. Like we did this fantastic episode with Chris Dixon on Web3. Check that out. That's kind of a bonus mental model for you. Also, David, you and I did this episode on the metaverse. I feel like it's still one of the best episodes I've heard on the metaverse yeah. just because it actually defines yeah. it. Okay. Concretely. Yeah. So many mm. people still think like Zuckerberg's version of the metaverse, which is just like virtual worlds. That's the metaverse. It's not. Okay. Or the VR. Yeah. VR. Whatever, yeah. It's not about virtual mm. worlds. It's about property rights. 
That's what the metaverse is about. Zoom is not the metaverse. <laughs> Zoom is not the metaverse, all right? It's just like an overlay of the metaverse. Property rights are the metaverse, and crypto is a key aspect of that. In fact, the foundational aspect of it. So listen to that podcast where we define the metaverse and talk about that in depth. We got to get to five bets going into 2022, all right? So if you've been hanging with us so far, what does all of this mean? How does number go up as a result of these theses, David? How are you positioning your time and resources and uh, capital going into 2022? Here are five of our bets going into 2022. Not all of them, but I think some of the more interesting concentrated bets. The first is this, okay? Bullish block space, but that comes in the form, at least for myself, of ETH, layer twos, and also some of the bridges from layer two to layer two. So Chris Dixon in our episode earlier this year called Blockspace like the most valuable commodity asset of you know 2021. And I agree. But as we talked about earlier, I feel like some of the block space out there is overvalued and some of it's undervalued. And I don't think not all block space is the same. It's not all the same. Some has stronger settlement guarantees, which is a mental model from 2021, bankless mental model, settlement guarantees. Go look that one up too. That might have been 2020. Yeah, 2020. Excuse me. I said 2021, mm -hmm. but it's 2020. The mm -hmm. modular blockchain thesis that we're talking about earlier makes me really bullish on Ethereum, of course, but also layer twos, you know, Polygon, Immutable, Starkware, Arbitrum. Aztec, Optimism, a slew of others that are about to enter. And I think Ethereum's roll-up scalability strategy, which is essentially the modular blockchain thesis, is massively undervalued. I expect layer twos to absolutely explode next year. I expect all layer twos to issue tokens at some point in the future. They're not going to tell you they're doing that, but that's what I expect. I also expect bridges like Hop Connects and Across to be a big deal. And for me personally, that's kind of the block space for my portfolio that I want. I'm more neutral on alt layer ones. Like I don't hate them. I don't understand what the valuations are based on and I don't like to invest in things I don't understand. So I'm not, I'm not a great meme investor personally. And I think some of these monolithic chains, they'll have some success in areas in the, maybe the medium term even. Some of them will pivot and become successful execution layers. Some of them will become more centralized and become a bit more like central banks. And Binance Chain is an example of that. I think others will fast follow Ethereum and go in the modular blockchain strategy direction. And I'm more bullish on those. But for me personally, I don't feel like I have a need to be exposed to those relative to Ether and layer twos. What are your thoughts on that, David? I think this prediction for 2022 hinges on whether or not these projects, teams, layer twos, bridges issue tokens. Yes. <laughs> need them to issue tokens. If they issue tokens, it's layer two summer. Bridges getting farmed with tokens, layer twos getting farmed with tokens, liquidity, all that stuff. Think of the, the layer twos that have issued tokens. Immutable, incredible adoption, incredible usage, incredible BD, DYDX incredible volumes, they have a token. The other ones that haven't had tokens are- Polygon. A Polygon, again, token, adoption. Like this is how this goes. Like Arbitrum, Optimism, StarkNet. I mean, it's still very, very early on StarkNet. Um, like no token, not so much adoption. Like people need the incentives. I think as soon as these tokens come out, people are going to start to view these layer twos as the things that you and I, Ryan, think that they are, which are like multi-decade long time horizons investment thesis as for block space. And so owning these tokens now are going to be very, very valuable. And that's going to be how a lot of momentum moves into the layer two world. Don't you think, David, tokens are inevitable though? Because of that economic fact? Yes, yes. Some of them have been very, very patient to issue tokens and 
I know, I know, like long-term thinking, long-term <laughs> thinking, like, it, like I'll be patient. Hold your horses. We can wait a year. <laughs> but goddamn, do I want the L2 token summer to happen. I think it's coming and I think we're building towards that. And I think we'll start to see some of that in uh, 2022. And I think people are way underexposed on uh, layer two uh, relative to alternative layer ones, but we'll see. Let's talk about the second bet category, which is next generation DeFi. So DeFi has been sleepy from a price perspective, but the builders have been continuing to build. And now we have layer twos that, that are coming out. I think that will bring a whole new cohort of breakout DeFi applications, applications that are born on layer twos rather than mainnet. We're not even possible on mainnet. I'm watching for these. I also think a lot of the blue chip DeFi assets, like the stuff that's inside of DPI, they're an absolute steal when you look at it from a price to sales or price to earnings ratio. Like some of these from a price to earnings ratio are like, lower PEs than Apple or General Electric. It's like silly how much cash these things are creating. Now, maybe you could argue the token valuations aren't tuned to capture them, but they will be. Governance will adjust that and make it so. And so I feel like if you think about the growth story of blue chip DeFi assets on layer two, and you think about them as also value assets from a price to earnings, price to sales perspective, they're both value assets and growth assets. So I'm actually bullish on the category. Uh, I think the blue chips are pretty cool too. I'm also too keeping an eye on alternative layer one projects. So there are new projects spinning up on, uh, DeFi projects spinning up on alternative layer ones and sidechains, Polygon for instance. And I think some of these could start to give some of the traditional Ethereum only DeFi projects a run from their money if they start to expand into layer two and Ethereum, right? It's ultimately... This is a battle for liquidity. It's the great battle for liquidity and the best money robots will win. And I think that's a great thing for consumers. So I'm keeping an eye, at least one eye open on what's happening in the alternative layer one and DeFi space as well. So those are some thoughts on uh, DeFi assets. What do you think? Yeah, I think the only thought I'll add is that there seems to be, hopefully, an aligning of the stars behind a lot of great under-the-radar DeFi projects that are coming onto mainnet, be that layer one or layer twos, just production-ready, simultaneously as layer twos start to remove whitelists and also uh, remove the breaks and allow for more unconstrained or lesser constrained supply of block space that has really kind of been the thing holding Optimism and Arbitrum back going from like having like Uniswap fees going from $5 where they currently are down to like 50 cents or even less than that. So brand new DeFi use cases simultaneously aligned with a lot more supply of block space to experiment and innovate and allow these new use cases that are coming online to also be surface area for additional use cases on top of them. And in order to incentivize and create that sort of, you know, innovation Cambrian explosion, you need cheap block space. So hopefully those stars are actually aligning in the way that I see them. Yeah, 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 totally agree. The third bet going into 2022 that I'm making is DAOs as a category of all types. And it it's kind of weird to bet on DAOs David, because like, what are DAOs? It's kind of weird to think of them as a category. It's kind of like, a, I'm betting on LLCs as my investment strategy, right? It's like, okay, but what LLCs? Right? But also it's a bet on but LLCs. It, it kind of makes sense going into 2022 because DAOs are so early stage, right? There are thousands of these experiments. There's the creator economy DAOs, fan token DAOs, media DAOs, social DAOs. DAOs that are doing weird things that we can't even predict, like trying to outbid a billionaire for a copy of the Constitution, all right? Like weird stuff. And I'm monitoring as many of these experiments as possible because some of them I think will be breakout successes. I think we're looking at, you know, potentially the future Fortune 500. And these assets will dwarf their traditional competitors. 
So what does getting exposure to a DAO look like? I think at this early stage, it just means tapping into as many experiments as possible, getting into these DAOs, actually becoming a member of them, participating in them, investing in infrastructure that they need too. That's a whole other category under DAOs. When it makes sense, potentially looking and evaluating their token. And I think DAOs as a category is not so much like you're not betting on specific areas of crypto as much as you're like betting on the blockchain's ability to coordinate. It's like DAOs are a bet on blockchain coordination. And that's why it makes sense to me. And I think coming out of 2022, I hope we have some like categories, subsectors of DAOs that make more sense. But right now I'm just like, I'm bullish DAOs. Are you bullish DAOs? What do you think about that? Oh yeah. Just the amount of flexibility that a DAO has, because like you said, betting on saying, I'm going to bet on LLC is kind of weird. That's because like an LLC can be anything, right? right. Uh, and a DAO can also be anything. Not only do I expect to see more DAOs in 2022, but I also expect to see DAOs be formed in attempt to do weird new things that like, I don't think we can predict right now for like buying the constitution would have been a great example. Hadn't that already happened? <laughs> yeah, that's weird, man. <laughs> that's weird. And it's going to get weirder. Bullish on weird DAOs. Yeah, exactly. Let me say that. That's it. Weird DAOs is a category. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about this, crypto gaming. So that's the fourth category of bet. I know you're super interested in this. We had two mm -hmm. podcasts recently, one with Ariana Simpson on the crypto gaming revolution, another with Amy Wu, Crypto Gaming 101. If you want to get up to speed, a primer on crypto gaming, I recommend you listen to those two podcasts. David, what are your thoughts on, on crypto gaming? And maybe as the key to the metaverse, because I think both you and I see... Crypto gaming is basically a portal of first instance, a manifestation, early manifestation of the metaverse. What do you think about this category of bet? Yeah, I think in 2022, the story is going to be a lot of gaming studios wanting to do crypto gaming and then getting a lot of pushback from their fans who don't want NFTs in their games at all. And then that friction leaving a lot of energy, a lot of room for newer, more indie upstart gaming studios to innovate and tinker with crypto asset powered games. I think there's going to be a big story of like gamers and game studios having a lot of friction because game studios knowing that it's the right direction to go, but also to answer to their very committed and loyal fan base and not trying to undermine them because, you know, in gaming communities, everything. Uh, but ultimately, crypto gaming will definitely become a thing, meaningfully different and distinct from non-crypto gaming. Uh, it's just going to be a, a matter of who's actually going to build them. Crypto gaming is one of those things where there's a lot a lot of development under the radar. Those games are not yet released, but they are being built by startups and crypto native people building games for crypto native people. They're not going to come from theme people like EA or Activision or anything like that. It's going to be a smaller studios that can uh, make more basic indie level games, but they are specifically built for crypto people. I think that's going to be 2022. Yeah, I agree. Bullish crypto native games, right? Not mm -hmm. games coming necessarily from the big studios, but what does right. this mean for an investor? It's like play games, play as many games as you can. If you like a game, look at the tokens, evaluate the items of that game. You can also get involved in gamer guilds is another opportunity for you. So lots of opportunities to plug in, get exposure to that. Decentralized identity. That's the fifth one. This is a bet that I think is interesting in 2022. And not a lot of people are talking about it right now because I guess there's not a lot of projects tackling this space, but I feel like we're kind of here, right? At the um, the tech tree that is crypto, we have some of the core primitives in place to bring about decentralized identity. And that's, we have sign-in with Ethereum, right? You have your private key, you can sign in better than Facebook. You just like plug in via MetaMask or via your Ethereum address. We have self-sovereign ENS names 
It's kind of a form of identity. We have an ecosystem of NFTs, right? These are like blue check marks potentially on Twitter. I feel like we need to complete the decentralized identity stories like attestations, some sort of proof of reputation. There are a few projects that I'm tracking that are related to this, but nothing has really broken out. But I, I think it's not far-fetched to start to see this emerging in the space of like on-chain resumes, right? Like the work, the things that I'm doing on-chain, I can associate with my reputation and I can get kind of a, a real life level up with that. I also think we might start to see interesting experiments with crypto native social networks in this space too. So decentralized identity is a category. I guess I don't have a lot of specific projects in mind, but like my eyes are peeled wide open. I think something cool could happen in 2022, but that's just a hunch. What's your take on this? Yeah, I think the whole sign in with Ethereum thing, like imagine like, you know, sign in with Facebook, sign in with Google, sign in with Ethereum. That button existing at the same time the Web3 narrative is taking off and becoming mainstream. Hang on, I can sign in with Google, like per normal, or I can sign in with this Ethereum thing that like, from what I'm told, gives me self-sovereignty and power and I get to stick my middle finger up to Google and not give them any of my data. Like, mm, maybe that sounds like kind of compelling. I like to stick it to the man. Maybe that's how this goes. Maybe sign in with Ethereum like arises at the same time that what the Web3 meme starts to become, you know, a household name. Absolutely. Guys, there are a few other spillover categories we can't get into. We've touched uh, five, but let me just list them off really quick. Still kind of bullish on crypto banks, okay? Because these are going to outmaneuver the incumbents. And by that, I mean like the Coinbase's, Gemini's, BlockFi's, FTX of the world. There's space for that, probably in a good investor portfolio, not financial advice. Also infrastructure, like block explorers, analytics tools, decentralized storage, all these indexing protocols like the graph. These are really the picks and shovels of crypto. And I think that's an interesting category to keep inside of a portfolio. I'm also bullish on super wallets, right? We saw MetaMask start adding DeFi features. I'm really excited about things like Xerion and Zapper and what they do in the future. These are really the front ends to the decentralized financial system. I think these are the, the banks of the future in a way. It's uh, bankless banks of the future. Really excited about what Argent's doing with its smart contract wallets now that it has layer two. I think we'll see that experiment play out and bullish on that. NFTs and DeFi. I know that was a major theme in the recent NFT conference you went to, right? So kind of this hybrid investment category, we're fractionalizing NFTs, we're getting indexes of NFT exposure, there's hedging projects on NFTs. Like DeFi meets NFTs is a really interesting space. And of course, NFT apps, okay? OpenSea was not the last answer to like <laughs> NFT apps, all right guys? Like OpenSea is awesome, but it's eBay, okay? And it's 1998 and we still have like Google, and Facebook and Instagram and all of these other application categories to unlock. So I think there's going to be several generations of opportunity of apps that are built on top of this NFT primitive. And they'll look a lot different than OpenSea and do different things versus OpenSea. So that's it from a bets perspective. Man, we went through a lot. We just went through the five things that we got right, the five things that surprised us, five mental models and five bets going into 2022. So David, we've talked about so much, all of these predictions. We don't have time to get into the legacy of bankless. And I know you wrote a post on that. I think we'll do another podcast on the subject. But how do you want to end this for the holidays? What are we thinking about going into 2022 that you want to leave folks with? Yeah, the discussion I want to have just to wrap this whole 2021 year up and 2022 predictions year. Ryan, 2022, bigger, equal to, or not as big as a deal as 2021 is with regards to crypto. We're going to get crazier. It's going to be about the same amount of crazy. 
Definitely bigger. Oh, definitely yeah. bigger. Why, why do you think definitely bigger? Well, uh, first of all, it could be wrong, right? It's like probabilistic. I could be wrong. But I've learned that when you're wrong, it's best to be wrong bullish in crypto. And we have a ton of momentum going to the next year. I think there's a ton of growth catalysts ahead for crypto. Yeah, I think layer two is going to be huge. I think yeah, Ethereum merge. I think in general, crypto as a category is going to absolutely fly next year. And it's going to be a very bullish year. Could be wrong. Other things can happen. But like, I'd rather be wrong bullish than wrong bearish because on average, you'll be right. <laughs> and you'll be more right over the long run. What's your take on that? What do you think? Yeah, so uh, in order for that take to be right, as in like it's going to continue to be bullish, maybe even be a little crazier than 2021, even though that's really hard. Being bullish and being crazier than 2021 are different things. I'm also bullish. I'm not not necessarily ready to commit that 2022 will actually be crazier than 2021 because 2021 was pretty damn crazy. But I could definitely get on board with it being another bullish year. And so granted, let's say 2022 is, is a bullish year. And what that means is that three out of the four quarters of the year are green and Q4 is higher in market cap values than the end of Q2, for example. Does that mean that it was a super cycle? I'm still kind of longer fourth cycle. I'm still not fully bought into the idea that this is a super cycle and the bull run never ends, Re reach this place of mainstream adoption. I do think that we'll have a very bullish next year. I think this is just a longer cycle than previous cycles. I do think this cycle kind of breaks the mold of, of previous cycles, except that it's just a repeating pattern and, and every cycle gets a little bit longer. I mean, we did this episode with Ben Cowan and talked a little bit about that, but I do think we'll get exuberant and there will need to be a, a pullback and that pullback will feel very drastic to a lot of newer entrants in the space. I think some of the people who've seen cycles before will just sort of shrug it off and stay Zen, but you know, people will call it a bear market rather than this idea of a super cycle. What do you think? I'm just trying to wrap my head around if we have a blow off top or not. Yeah. Say we can get some sort of just like vision of the future and the future tells us that like crypto prices are going to go up 20% quarter after quarter for the next four to six quarters. Well, you know what happens next? A blow off <laughs> top because everyone buys it because then and then it just gets yeah, exactly, too exuberant, yeah. right? Uh, and so like in my mind, I'm kind of worried, like it doesn't matter how long and slow and steady and sustainable crypto price rises are, because the more that that's true, the more likelihood you accidentally manifest a blow off top. Oh, I think there's going to be a blow off top, to be clear. What do you think? Blow off top in 2022? Maybe not in 2022, maybe not. But if not 2022, then into 2023, you know, like it's going to happen. Like we're not done with blows off the top. And it's not binary either, right? Like you could have two blow off tops <laughs> right. that are smaller blow off tops. And maybe that's just part of the larger bull market. Maybe it's a mini blow off top. Like who knows? The 2017 blow off top was one single gargantuan blow off top eruption. And then we suffered our hangover for the next two years. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe we're more mature as, as an industry. Maybe we just have a bunch of mini blow off tops for the rest of time. Who knows? Do you know why I'm feeling... You know, I'm feeling Zen though, David, is because like, I don't feel a pressure to trade those things. Way too difficult. Way too difficult. I don't feel like I have to time it, right? Like I'm, you know, holding space next decade, settler, not a trader that restores some Zen. So just let it play out slowly and let the traders worry about these things at some level. But yeah, it is always nice to be bullish, <laughs> I guess. I think the case for a crazier 2022 uh, resides in inflation. If inflation stays hot, 2022 will get crazy. I wonder if there's some diminishing, I'd be interested in having Jim Bianco on or somebody like talk about Lynn Alden or somebody. It's like, is there a point of diminishing returns where it's like inflation gets so hot 
and you know maybe double digit something that like crypto gets crushed as a result we get into this like people just get scared yeah people get spooked. scared like cr crypto is still a risk on asset is it not right. and so right. in high inflationary circumstances how many people are going to want to hold risk on assets versus other well it's a risk on asset but also it is strong property rights i know in a world where inflation tends to bring on right. governments that try to take a lot of property it's weird right <laughs> it's in this weird place yeah. right? and that's why it's this mm -hmm. industry is notoriously hard to predict from that perspective right. but um right. you'll be fine if you're bullish long run i think yep i think that's always true it's always worse before guys Thanks for hanging with us throughout the year. We definitely appreciate the community. We appreciate you listening to this podcast, giving us your time. We hope you enjoy some time with the family this Christmas. Hope you come back in 2022 refreshed and ready for a new year. We'll be right there with you. We've got some awesome podcasts and articles planned for next quarter that we're super excited about. And uh, I think crypto's about to have another tremendous year. Anyway, thanks for hanging with us. Our best to you, you and your family and friends and stay safe this holiday season some action items for you as well before we get to risks and disclaimers. We'll include some of the readings that we mentioned, the five things we got right article, our predictions, as well as some of our thoughts on the legacy of Bankless. It's another podcast we'll get to at some point in time too. Also, Dave and I, we've already put together a year in review for the roll-up. So these are the top 25, I think, news events of the year. David and I are covering them. They are on a previous podcast. So Tune into that if you want to get caught up on the year's news as well. As always, guys, risks and disclaimers. ETH is risky. Crypto is risky. So is DeFi. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.